From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales, Gator Greats. I'm your host, Adam Schick. On our last episode, we took you through the early rise of the 2016, which saw them peak at number two in the country before suffering their first loss at the hands of Auburn. But going into the bye week, everything was still in front of them and all goals remained on the table. While they knew the margin for error was slim, they likely didn't realize it could be measured by a ring finger. This is Trail to Glendale, Episode 4. Before getting to the namesake event of this episode, the Gators made the 90-minute drive to Jacksonville for the annual Florida-Georgia battle. For freshman and St. Augustine native Brandon James, it was both the homecoming and a game that held additional meaning for personal reasons. That was um, one of the first times my uncle got to see me play. You know, he uh, was going through some legal troubles and stuff like that, but he got to see, he was actually at that game. And I actually had a return that I scored and they called back. And, you know, so I had some success that game. I remember the first kickoff return of the game. I took it like to the 50, gave us great field position. And so speaking from my perspective, I had some success that game. And, you know, just remember the electricity in Jacksonville, man, because, again, you watch all those games, you, you see them on TV, but you don't know until you get there. And, you know, the, the stadium is split half and half. People are going crazy. You, you don't really know who's cheering for who because the noise level is just going crazy the whole time. And, uh, man, I remember that first that punt return I did score on, man. I was just like, man, I just scored in the Florida-Georgia game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it got called back and everything like that. But, again, I tell people all the time, when I'm a freshman and at those moments, like, man, all those plays counted for me because, again, I'm the three-star that was not supposed to be on the field. So just having that success in that game and be validating, again, everyone that said, hey, he should be on the field, um, no matter, again, and, and in sports period, you know, a win is a win. If it's by half a point, two points, three points, whatever it is, we won the game and against a quality SEC opponent. So I just remember the atmosphere being crazy. Um, you know, again, them having a lot of NFL talent. Of course, we had a lot of NFL talent and it being a nail-biter all the way to the end. And, you know, I was just fortunate to be a part of it and make the plays that I did throughout that game. As James noted, it was another tight contest that followed a familiar pattern for the 2006 season, with the Gators racing out to a big early lead and then holding on down the stretch to get the W. What made the difference on that day was a ball-hawking defense that forced five turnovers, including a game-changing fumble at the start of the second half that buried the Bulldogs. Rayleigh and Harris and Twins to the right, but it's a running play to Lumpkin. He loses the ball. It's a fumble, and the Gators are going to pick it up, and they're going to score a touchdown as the Gators got a touchdown by Ray McDonald, who picked it up and returned it for a touchdown. Oh, Oh, my. Wow. That put the orange and blue up 21-0, and they held Matthew Stafford down just enough to sneak away with a 21-14 win. After Jacksonville, it was back on the road to Vanderbilt, often a tough game in Nashville, especially when sandwiched between much bigger names on the marquee. The Gators were solidly in control for most of the game, taking a 25-6 lead into the fourth quarter. But the Commodores rallied back and nearly derailed the Gators' championship hopes, ultimately coming a bit short as Florida hung on 25-19 despite being outgained by 60 yards on the night. This set the stage for the game nearly everyone had circled in the calendar, mostly because of the Hollywood-ready storyline of the prodigal son returning home, 
albeit on the other sideline. Steve Spurrier had already coached against and beaten the Gators as the head coach of the Gamecocks the year prior, but that was in Columbia. This was in Gainesville, in the stadium he himself christened the Swamp. As athletic director Jeremy Foley remembers, the game was loaded with pressure well before kickoff. Yeah, I mean, certainly there was a lot of pressure going into that game. You know, at that point in time, we don't have aspirations of going to Glendale. I mean, that did not happen until we got to Atlanta. But we have now had a heck of a year, and we have beaten Georgia, and now we have to beat South Carolina to get to Atlanta. Pressure on the fact we'd lost before earlier. Obviously, the Urban-Steve dynamic existed. So, I mean, there's a lot riding on that ballgame. So, yeah, I remember that. I remember, obviously, the outcome, remember what it meant. And, you know, certainly the rest is history. But um, no question, there was a lot of scenarios, a lot of stories, a lot of pressures involved in that, in that one football game. While the Gators had a lot on the line, South Carolina actually had very little at stake. The Gamecocks were 5-4 and four going into the game, and Steve Spurrier recalls the pursuit of history being about the only carrot driving his team. It was a, uh, just a game that uh, we, we had a good, you know, a good emotion, uh, good energy and all that kind of stuff. You usually only get those maybe twice a year, two or three, where, where the players are extra juiced up, if you know what I mean. And it was mainly because we'd never beaten Florida down there in the history of the two schools. So that would have been neat if we could have done something for the first time ever. That's, that's what I'm sort of big on, those first time ever things. And going to South Carolina, we had a chance to achieve a whole bunch of those. But surely being on the other sideline in the very stadium where he won a Heisman Trophy as a player and a national title as a coach had some impact on him, right? No, it did not affect me at all. I coached, uh, let's see, five games down there, and we won two of them, 2010 and then 2014, and actually won three at home. So we were, I was 500 against my old team, the Gators. <laughs> so uh, I'll take that since South Carolina hadn't beaten them since 1939. So anyway, I only knew about one player on the Florida, one or two players on the Florida team in 05. And by 06, I don't think I knew any of the guys there. So it was, uh, you know, my team at that time was South Carolina. My team is the Gators now. But that's just the way, way it was between uh, 2005 through, uh, through 15 there. So it's pretty clear the HBC wasn't feeling anything extra that night, or at least he won't tip his hand nearly 15 years later. On the contrary, Urban Meyer makes no bones about how the buildup affected him. It was awful. Coach Furrier, who, who's a very good friend and a guy that I admire, still were very close and a guy that I admire and always did. And there was a large faction of people that wanted him to be the coach in, in Gator Nation. You know, if we lose that game because we lost to him already, you, you know, you're talking about it might be mutiny. And so it was, uh, we did not play well on offense. We did okay, but we were, I remember Dan Mullen was our offense coordinator and we, we didn't stick to what we did well before going into that game. So I remember we just weren't playing great on offense, kind of behind the whole game, but it was reality was sinking in. You lose this game now and that's a problem. Friendships between coaches are always unique when both are still active, as there's only so much you can really share when your teams are standing in each other's way. For that reason, Spurrier didn't sense what Meyer was feeling. No, not really. I, you know, I, I didn't talk to him during the week of the game or anything like that. I've very ever talked to another coach. Uh, right before the game, you may say hello and shake hands. And, but uh, now I had a lot more to worry about than, uh, you know, the other team's coach at that time. And a lot of people don't realize when you're the offensive play caller, 
that's about the only thing on your mind is trying to get the ball plays in there, trying to find a good play here and there, and get your quarterback coach step. That's that's a full time job. So all the outside stuff, the uh, all the things that go on behind the scenes, uh, I really pretty much blocked all that out and tried to be the best play caller I could uh, for our team. As Urban noted before, Florida's offense had been sputtering a bit entering the game, and those issues remained through most of this one as well. The story was special teams, and both teams missed kicks throughout the game, with Florida's senior Chris Hetland missing the mark in the first quarter on a 29-yard attempt, and Carolina's freshman Ryan Suckup getting a 47-yarder blocked in the third quarter by Ray McDonald. Entering the fourth quarter locked in a surprising stalemate at seven apiece, both teams would make kicks, with Suckup drilling one from 47 and Hetland putting through a 22-yarder to tie the game at 10 with just under 11 minutes left. That led to a six-play, 80-yard touchdown drive for South Carolina that CBS's Gary Danielson marveled at. Davis to the corner, touchdown, South Carolina. That's the best called drive I've seen in 10 years in college football. Really? That was perfect. Every play called had a plan, executed. They knew exactly what they wanted to do, and they got it in for seven points. I think we didn't we have about a 12, 15 yard run to score down in there. I, mean, well, I don't know. It must have taken some time. That must have been what he meant. But we were not a, a great passing team back in those days. Decent. Uh, we were a lot better when we got Alshon Jeffrey and some other guys uh, in there a little bit later on. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot about our drive, except that we were able to stay on the field for quite a while. And uh, probably made a few third downs. Uh, Sidney Rice, obviously, is All-American wide receiver. So we tried to get it toward him as often as we could So and, and run the ball also. But I, I didn't realize it was that great a drive. The Gamecocks took a 16-10 lead, but were denied the full seven by the second block kick of the night for Florida, as Jarvis Moss swatted away the extra point and eerily foreshadowed what was to come. For South Carolina, they would need to dig in a little bit deeper defensively, as this was hardly the fun and gun Spurrier was used to having at his disposal inside the hallowed walls of Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. We did have a pretty good defensive plan, and uh, even though we didn't score a lot, we did stay on the field a bit and you know, keep the clock moving. And I think some of their drives were long drives also, so we avoided big plays. As Brandon James recalls, it was a master class in coaching from one of the greats. Well, going through that game, you know, of course, I knew who Steve Spurrier was. Um, and so him being at South Carolina, you know, okay, he's a great coach, but he has, you know, they didn't stand uh, toe-to-toe with the talent that we already seen from Tennessee and LSU and Alabama, all those other teams we played. So I'm like, okay, you know, it should be a good game, but we should win. We should beat them. But I learned early on, like, Steve Spurrier is a great coach, man. He <laughs> ball controlled us. He kept the ball away from our offense. He was kicking away from me. That, And I tell people all the time, like, I don't want to, you know, toot my own horn or anything like that. But Steve Spurrier, if anybody can correct me if I'm wrong, but he was the first one that I seen rugby punting away from me. Hmm. Like, he literally had the punter running sideline to sideline, just holding the ball as long as he could to get the return team down there. And then would kick the ball basically out of bounds or would dribble uh, away from me and stuff like that. And so it was frustrating for me that night. But, you know, I learned early on, like, he is a really a great coach because not really having a lot of big names and being able to stand toe-to-toe with us that night. Down by six, the Gators started their next drive with 7.40 to play and their championship dreams hanging in the balance. 
The Gamecocks quickly snuffed out an incomplete pass and a couple of runs that put Florida in a fourth and one from their own 29. Meyer could have punted, and maybe would have in another situation. But in this instance, it was Tebow time. You know, a lot of people may not remember this, but you know, that drive for us to take the lead against South Carolina gave us the lead that led obviously to, you know, the next drive. But we hadn't done a whole lot on offense that night. And, you know, you know, Urban knew how talented Steve was. And without six minutes to go, we had a fourth and one in like our own 22. And, you know, 99 of 100 coaches are, are kicking the ball. They're punting and trying to hold Steve and get the ball back and you know, score the winning touchdown. Urban went for it on fourth and one, gave the ball to, you know, Tebow in the, in the shotgun. And everybody knew in America he was going to get it. He mm. got the first down. And then we continued down the field to score the go-ahead, ultimately the winning touchdown. Tebow goes left to the five. Hetland knocked the extra point through, and with two and a half minutes to play, the Gators clung to a one-point lead. But the head ball coach wasn't done yet, as Blake Mitchell hit three straight passes to get across midfield, and needing only a field goal, the swamp was getting stickier by the second. Right about now, you're probably waiting for me to get to the play that everyone remembers. But while a Gator finger may have ended the game, both coaches immediately point to a Gamecock flinch a few snaps prior that truly changed the trajectory of the evening. We went ahead, you know, we had a chance to seal the game and our defense let them live drive down the field. And do you remember there was an, I think, an illegal procedure penalty that stopped a big play and they had one of the best kickers in American suck up. Yeah, obviously, it was a game we had uh, a lot of chances to win, but the football gods did not quite smile on us. And uh, a lot of people think uh, Jarvis Moss blocking the field goal cost us the game. But what cost us the game was uh, about three plays before we hit a little slant and go down to the eight-yard line. And I saw the left guard flinch, and I saw the referee throw his flag, and I said, I hope we don't hit it. And uh, later in the week when we were watching the uh, tape of it uh, following Monday, Sidney Rice said, Coach, did you see uh, the flag they also threw on the defensive back? The defensive back tried to grab Sidney and didn't get a good piece of him, and they called pass interference on him, but it was a dead play from the beginning because our guy jumped right before the snap. The nearly 30-yard pass that momentarily silenced the crowd was nullified, and now South Carolina was back at the UF 40 with just 18 seconds left. Enough time to get to the 31 and center the ball for Suckup to try and win the game. While Meyer brought together a huddle to work on another block plan, Spurrier could only hope that his freshman had the tools within himself to deliver a stunner. No, I think we all just stay away from the kicker. He usually gets out outside the huddle a little bit. Nobody talks to him, kicks around a little bit, you know, visualizes, gets, gets set, make a good swing at it. The one thing I do remember, one of the camera men got right in my face before that field goal. And I looked at him, I said, I'm not going to have a reaction if he makes it or misses. So you might as well show somebody else. I don't know. Maybe that's just the way I felt in the moment. It it wasn't going to kill us if if he missed it. If he made it, it was nice. But we weren't going anywhere. I mean, it was just just another win. It wasn't, well, it would have been the first ever. uh, But we got that in 2010. It took a while. The third trip to the swamp, I guess we got it. So our our team wasn't going much. It had been a nice win. But we'd had that the year before. Mm-hmm. in 05 but it would have been just a nice win we, we didn't have a lot uh, on the line except uh, trying to win the ball game you know we called timeout twice to let Jarvis Moss get some you know Gatorade in him and he <laughs> went up and changed the game his ring finger here's freshman linebacker Brandon Spikes 
I remember calling a timeout. I remember Charlie Strong. We all in the huddle talking, Greg Madison, whatever. And I remember Monsters was like, don't worry about it, everybody. I'm going to block that. Shit. I'm going to block it. <laughs> Watch. I'm going to block it. I was sitting there and I went out there. I was part of the field goal team, too. So I was just trying to see what I can do, get a push or whatever. But I went hard as I could. Next thing I know, I heard, that's the crowd went. I don't know. I've never heard anything like that. And I don't play in the Super Bowls. I don't play in the national championship games. That moment in the swamp, that may be the loudest I ever heard. I don't, in my opinion. I mean, I didn't know because it was my first year. So right. but now, and I look back at it. I mean, I'm going to heard it rocking now. I've heard it rocking a few times. But when that happened and that <laughs> Jarvis Miles blocked that ball, man, that's unbelievable. I think I had tears in my eyes. I think I literally was getting ready to jump off the ball before they hiked it. Cause I, I thought I didn't think we was gonna lose, but you know you get that feeling like man, if they make this, a whole national title run is over. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So it was a weird feeling just to be just straight out of high school, but to be in a game like that. But when he when he blocked it, man, um, it was so crazy. It was electric. It'll be a 48-yard field goal once we finish this Gator timeout. And Suckups had a lot of time to think about it. He's taken a few. Practice kicks through the air. Now he takes his steps. Backs up about four. Slides over two. Here we go. From 48 yards. And the ball game. The snap. The kick. It's been blocked again. Oh, my. It's been blocked again. And the clock is going to run out. And the Gators have won the game. Oh, my. The play of the day. Have you seen everything now? They blocked three kicks today, and they've won the game. Oh, my. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He never had a chance. Oh, my. Gators, 17. Carolina, 16. It's an insane asylum in the swamp for the first time in a decade. <laughs> well, when you're in the moment, you're just... You're thinking about the moment, what's right for the team as far as calling timeout. Make sure your personnel's in. Make sure Charlie Strong was in charge of field goal block. We had the right block called. When the ball was blocked, I've never heard a stadium louder. And both Shelly and I, to this day, said that's the loudest we've ever heard a stadium. And I remember Coach Spurrier after the game, obviously the sportsmanship that he, he is. And he's, like I said, a good friend. He grabbed me and he said, go win the national championship. And I'll, I'll never forget that. I, I don't actually remember saying it, but I probably did. They were representing the SEC. It was my school. They only had one loss. So all they had to do was uh, beat FSU, win the SEC, and then national championship. They were in position to uh, to make the run, which they did. So uh, certainly I was rooting for the Gators all the way. While the two head coaches shared that moment at midfield, Bedlam was still ensuing all around the swamp. And almost everyone who was there remembers exactly where they were and what they were thinking the moment it happened. Well, I remember I was down on the field, you know, down underneath the goalpost like I usually was, and, and obviously an incredible angle of where he's kicking. Like anybody else, like any Gator fan, like anybody involved in that ball game, like any coach, player, you know, your stomach's upside down, nervous as heck. I'm sure there was a timeout involved somewhere, so I just <laughs> extend, just extended it. Back then, I couldn't see very well. <laughs> My eyesight wasn't really good. It's gotten a little better since I had some surgery, but um, I remember the incredible sound the Gator fans made when it got blocked. I mean, you can still hear it on, you watch a YouTube um, clip of that. It's like a bomb went off. It's so loud, you know, mm-hmm. and absolutely incredible. And, you know, you you can't believe that that just happened. Blocking kicks are really hard to do. 
Plus, the guy kicking it is really good. I think he played in the NFL for a long, long time, you know? So it's not like he missed it. We blocked it. Well, you know, when Jarvis Moss, who's 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, and, you know, jumped out of his out of his skin to do it, I think he blocked it with one finger. That's mm-hmm. how close it is. That's why I always tell people, I mean, we you look at the season we had from that point on, SEC title, go to Glendale, win the national championship, because a finger touched a football. Right. That's how fragile it is, and that's how hard it is to do. Certainly, he could that finger could have missed the ball kick is made and history is different but um certainly just remember you know the appreciation for makes you make makes championships even more you know, because they're so hard to do and they're so fragile obviously game of inches sounds um so trite but it is so true Jarvis Moss was just one of those guys he had that type of ability too believe it or not like it's, it wasn't much that he couldn't do well when he was crazy fast could jump high he was strong to be his size it, it was crazy it was a normal athlete he just i don't know you can just see it in his eyes like and i knew how bad the seniors wanted it i mean not the same but the older guy i think he was a junior right and he went on and left because he had a great season but yeah man those dudes they they had so much invested in it. you could tell right we, we had just got there but you could tell how much they wanted how hard everybody worked how much they had into it and just to see him in that huddle tell us that he was gonna block this and then go block it and win the game for us he's like don't worry about it i'm gonna win the game i, I remember it clean this day Plain as day, he said it just like that. Wow. So casually, he went and blocked it. I mean, Jarvis Moss block was unbelievable. I mean, I think we, what, we blocked three kicks in that game and, and beat them 17 to 16. So mm. obviously, we needed all three of those blocks to win that game uh, against Steve Spurrier. I mean, so I mean that that was unbelievable to to, to watch that. It, it, it really, when South Carolina lined up, the kid had the leg. You knew he had the leg to do it. It wasn't a question of distance. It was, you know, is he going to be accurate? Well, it turned out that wasn't the question either. It was, was a kick going to get past the line of scrimmage? And no, it wasn't because we, we blocked it and uh, the place went, uh, you know, off the charts. Man, I remember standing on the bench and that was probably the loudest next to when Spikes kicked the ball <laughs> versus LSU my junior year. Those were probably the two times that the swamp basically just, you can't hear any. If, if me and you are standing face to face, we can't hear each other talk because it was crazy that night. We've established it was incredibly loud, and if you were there, you certainly don't need to be reminded of that, as you've probably invested in hearing aids as a result of that night. But just how loud was it, especially compared to other moments in the history of the Swamp? We'll start by hearing from offensive coordinator Dan Mullen. You know, I think, you know, for me, I think that was uh, LaMichael P. Ryan's run against Auburn this year. You know, I don't know if you ever seen the field level of it. There's someone has a field field level video and you see the audio increase three different times during the run, I think was pretty loud. And, you know, in my experience and, and Brad Stewart's interception for the touchdown to beat, uh, beat LSU, you know, in, in 2018, those were loud. And, and but that was, you know, that those uh, those three moments are are certainly three of the loudest. And, and you know, at that one, that, I think that the place just exploded in that one moment. It would be, be hard. There'd be a great argument on which one and which one is the actual loudest moment. You know, that was there. And then obviously the last drive against FSU, I think in 97 or 98, whatever that was, Doug Johnson, the Quezzi, um, and then Fred Taylor, two straight runs. and We scored a touchdown. It didn't look like we were going to win the ball game. It was as what did, what did Mick say is saying asylum in the swamp. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And so those two games, I remember as for their for how loud they are. Obviously, the swamp is off the charts loud when we're playing a big ball game and having success. But I do remember that those two games, particularly the noise, was at a different level. 
it's hard for me to say if it's number one or not. And that's not discounting the fact that it might be number one. There's just been so many. And I sit high above the crowd with a headset on. And so it's hard to know how much natural sound is bleeding through my headsets and how much of the natural sound is artificially being pumped in my headset. Because as sportscasters, you know, we're like rock musicians. Most of us don't have very good hearing by the time we reach this age because we've had our headsets cranked up so loud that we've destroyed our natural hearing. And so, you know, it was tremendously loud. And sometimes, even to this day, when a stadium is real loud, I'll, I'll just pull my headsets away from my ears three or four inches as if I'm a turtle sticking my head out to actually hear what it sounds like naturally. And then I know I can't call a game like that. So I put my headsets back on just to just to kind of get myself back into what it's really like. So it was right up there. Uh, you know, in that 1990 season, you know, that was the first year when they closed in the North End Zone. And it was also correspondingly Steve Spurrier's first year. So I'm telling you this, that was 30 years ago. There was tremendous enthusiasm slash emotion in beating Oklahoma State 50-7 to and right on through the season. And then we beat FSU in the final in, in 91, 14 to 9. There were games in those first two years that were really something, including uh, the game, I think it was in 91 against Tennessee when Larry Kennedy had a pick six that again ran down the south to the southeast corner of the end zone for his pick six. At that moment, that may have been the loudest I'd heard the stadium, but I'm not discounting some of those other moments. You know, and then you go back to the Gator win over FSU in 1997, you know, that tremendous comeback. And then there are people, there are people, and again, because we, we pick up new fans all along the line, you know, different generations and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, because it was just six months ago, there are people that believe the stadium was the loudest it's ever been last Auburn game last fall. It was very loud, but I don't know that it was any louder than any of those other games, but it may have been the loudest for some people who hadn't heard those other games. So it's all relative to how, how long you've been in the stadium, how many games you've seen. And certainly the Jarvis Moss kick of now 14 years ago is in the top 10 and maybe the top five for sure. And maybe number one. I usually have my headset on uh, most of those times. So I'm not probably the best one to ask. I guess it was loud. A lot of the Gators, it didn't didn't face me, though, because I wasn't looking for any celebration noise at the time. Now, I go back to uh, uh, our 91 Tennessee game when Larry Kennedy got that interception to ice that game. Uh, 35-18, we beat Tennessee in 91. That was really loud. And then even in 93, right before Charlie Ward rolled out of the pocket and hit Ward done for a, about an 80-yard touchdown, it was loud right before that snap. So that was loud then, and some other times, I guess, were pretty loud. 97 FSU game, and then uh, some of those Tennessee games, I think. For some reason, Tennessee and FSU seemed to be the, the big uh, noisemakers uh, when we played at home. While only one point separated Florida and South Carolina on that night, they were miles apart in terms of where their seasons would ultimately end up. No, we, we weren't playing for the division or the SEC or anything like that. We were just trying to win us a ball game. I think we ended up 6-6 six and six that year. So uh, we didn't have a super year by any means. And uh, I think that was the year we didn't. The only year we didn't go to the bowl game. We were 6-6. Six and six, and I think Alabama was actually 6-6 six and six that year. And uh, they only had one spot left. And guess who got it? <laughs> Between Alabama and South Carolina, I thought. So Bama got it, and uh, we got left out. For the Gators, and especially redshirt freshman receiver David Nelson, finding yet another improbable way to win only furthered their belief in themselves. I think everybody in the stands, except for the guys on the sidelines and the guys in the field, you know, just assumed they were going to make it. You know, they're all hoping, they're all praying, like, please let them miss it. Please let them go. Please let this not go through the uprights. 
but I, I think there was a there was a consensus on our team that we were not going to be denied that something was going to happen, whether it hit the goalpost or whether he missed it or we blocked it. There was just this feeling that we all had, this confidence that we all had just after, like I said, that entire year of going through all kinds of different stuff together, really finding our stride at that point. You could just see the guys were not going to let that slip through the cracks. They were not going to let that slip through their fingers. And with Jarvis Moss, obviously, uh, doing what he did and, and blocking that field goal and just seeing that place go crazy and just seeing everybody – uh, run onto the field, man. It was one of the most, uh, aside from the national championships and SEC championships, man, that is the best memory I have from my experience in Florida. Just seeing freshmen, sophomore, junior, seniors, starters, bench warmers, walk-ons, uh, some fans, some cheerleaders, some band <laughs> members. I mean, you name it, man. They were all there just celebrating together. And you can just see it was a culmination of, of just effort and determination and kind of everybody at the same time, fans, players, administration, realizing this team is something different. This team refuses to give up. This team refuses to to accept defeat and find ways. We weren't winning pretty at that time. I mean, we weren't blowing teams out, but we were uh, we were winning games and we were finding whatever whatever however we needed to do it. We were doing it, and that game and just the way we did it. And man, it was just uh, uh, it's a memory I'll never forget. I mean, running into the field and. And jumping on guys and just stuff you dream of, you know, mm-hmm. as teammates, just exciting, just the atmosphere, the swamp was electric. I mean, it's just, that isn't the way you draw it up, but it's the way it happened. And, and you can just kind of see guys kind of all look at each other and say, you know what, we have something special here. And I think that was kind of when everybody realized like, you know what, this is, it's time to put the, the foot on the pedal a little bit and let's go get us a championship. That's when I knew, like, that game, we did everything to lose that game, believe it or not. And to still come out on top, I don't even think, was South Carolina even playing for anything? No. And they had us against the ropes in a swamp. Come on now. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they had us against the ropes, bro. But it, when that happened, yeah, I think everybody just started. It was like, okay, that happened for a reason. You know what I'm saying? We still in it. We still in the run. I, I forget how everything, it was been so long ago. I forget how everything went down. But, yeah, a lot did still have to happen. But, yeah, I think after that, man, everybody pretty much was like, Let's go do this. We can do this. Mm-hmm. We, you know, sometimes those games come down to a player too. Like the big games come down to a player too. And if the, the teams that make those plays, they're the teams that win the, the, big, the championship games. That's right. It's just that simple. Some do, some don't. The Gators' escape from the swamp moved them up in the BCS, sitting at number three when they demolished Western Carolina 62 to nothing. The following week, they actually slipped to number four going into the FSU game to end the regular season. While the Seminoles were just 6-5 and five on the year and not really playing for anything, Brandon James explains why that rivalry burns so hot, especially for a freshman who grew up in the Sunshine State. That was, again, I grew up diehard Florida State. You know, if, if I'm telling you who, if, if I were to name for you some of my favorite football players, you know, Deion Sanders, Peter Warwick, Charlie Ward, Ward Dunn, a lot of them were Florida State players. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I grew up a diehard Florida State. So being able to go in that stadium, and, man, I just remember that being a good – you know, they were still pretty good at the time, and it was a back-and-forth game until Bubba kind of got in and did the Dougie in the uh, end zone. <laughs> and so uh, I remember, like, you know, all those plays vividly, man. I remember him getting in and doing the Dougie and us going crazy about that. Some of the defensive guys, that's when the, the sunk balling was going out and guys sacking the quarterback and – doing all those things, man. So that was a real big game, man. And, again, for me, just growing up, a diehard Florida State fan, I'm trying to validate and show Bobby Bowden, like, look, man, you should have recruited me. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, 
again, man, it was just it was just real special for me. The Gators raced out to an early lead on the strength of the explosive plays they had been craving, including a short swing pass from Leak to Caldwell that turned into a devilish 66-yard touchdown and some patented Percy Harvin wheels. Gators have a second and 11. And now here they're going to run the ball, and here's the, Harvin going to run the ball near sideline to 30. He's to the 20. He's to the 10. Near sideline. Harvin is going to take it all the way for a touchdown for the Gators. Oh, my. That's a 42-yard run, and he was out of there like a lightning quick shot down the right sideline. Florida's 14-0 advantage evaporated by the early portion of the fourth quarter, and it would be another nail-biter to see if the Gators could keep their BCS aspirations alive. They once again showed their mettle in the face of adversity, with the offense flipping the switch on a 10-play, 74-yard drive capped by the touchdown maker. Gators have third down and nine from the 25-yard line. Baker wide right, trips wide to the left. There's the snap to Leak. Leak looking to throw, hangs it up toward the end zone for Baker. He's there. He's got it. Touchdown, Dallas Baker. The touchdown maker and the Gators lead 20 to 14. Oh my! The Gators eked out a 21-14 win, wrapping the regular season at 11 and 1 and staying in the hunt. It wasn't always easy or pretty getting through the gauntlet, but as co-defensive coordinator Greg Madison points out, they simply found a way. Well, I mean, there were so many games that like you said that that was that SEC that year was a, was a great conference and there were so many games that our guys found a way to win which told you okay they do have something special now when we get to the big dance are they going to prepare to do the final steps and they did and and that's that's what you saw On our next episode, the Gators head to Atlanta and beyond in pursuit of college football immortality. Until then, I'm Adam Schick giving a special thanks to production assistant Eli Rosen and to all of you for tuning into this latest installment of Gator Tales, Gator Greats.